Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is a special edition of Wall Street Week from Aspen, Colorado, where we've come for the annual Aspen Economic Strategy Group meetings, bringing together economic experts and business leaders for a nonpartisan, detailed discussion of some of the big economic issues in front of us. This year, the focus is on building a more resilient U.S. economy, with a discussion ranging from things like the debt and deficit to tax policy to where we're headed with artificial intelligence. We'll hear from special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard, his fellow former Treasury Secretaries Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner, former Honeywell CEO Dave Cody, and regional Fed presidents Austin Goolsby of Chicago and Rafael Bostic of Atlanta. But we start with the distinguished labor economist who until recently was interpreting these numbers for President Biden. She is Cecilia what the uh, Department of Labor reported today was that the U.S. economy added about 187,000 jobs last month, uh, which is a robust number. It's the kind of number that I'm confident my colleagues at the Biden administration celebrated because what we've known is we had the pandemic-induced recession. We saw the fastest growth out of that, but we also know that that kind of growth of 300,000 jobs a month is not sustainable. That's not consistent with an economy that has reached its, you know, whether we want to call it steady state, but it is a naturally, you know, robust economy. 
And so we've been looking for and anticipating and uh, kind of a cooling. Uh, last year, President Biden had an op-ed. It was, I think, the Wall Street Journal anticipating this. But it's not even just about the president there. It's just that that is what we've that's what we want to see. That is what the Federal Reserve is looking for is a labor market that remains remarkably resilient, I will say that. So it is robust, but where we have the annual jobs uh, numbers looking more consistent with just sort of typical t turnover in a strong economy. As you say, remarkably resilient. As a labor economist, have you been surprised, not the snapback after the pandemic, but at the continued robustness? Because yes. 187,000 yes. jobs may not be 200,000, but it's a lot more it's than a, you need to have just to absorb the new additions of people to the workforce. Absolutely. And is slightly more than you would expect to see with an unemployment rate of 3.5%. Uh, and at this stage of, of the economic recovery. So it has been remarkably resilient. If you think about the changes in the inflation rate over the past year, inflation has come down uh, quite a bit. And yet we've not seen much evidence of any impact on the labor market. So this, for me, this goes back to the massive disruption caused by the pandemic. Which, have, which affected every aspect of our, our economy in the U.S. globally. And that it goes to the, you know, the disruption was on the supply side. We definitely had the robust assistance on the fiscal side, on the monetary side, to ensure that we could get through the pandemic uh, without too much disruption to our, our way of life and to our economic, um, uh, you know, our, our economic uh, health. And that this is an economy that's knitting itself back together. But it has been surprisingly <laughs> resilient. We also, I believe, saw a little bit of a reduction in the average hours worked per week. Mm -hmm. Is that potentially an indication maybe the labor market started to soften a little bit around, around the edges? So, again, we want to see a little bit of softening. Right. That's what the Federal Reserve is looking for. Uh, so, you know, we, it's important that we not focus on any one month's numbers. Uh, but that could be a sign uh, that uh, a little bit of cool here and there. Our unemployment insurance claims numbers remain very low. The job openings numbers remain very high. So we fundamentally have a strong labor market with, with some signs that there's some cooling as, as we would hope to see. We've been through an extraordinary period of time for the labor market, among other markets, mm -hmm. uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, we now are coming back from that. Is it too mm -hmm. early to ask ourselves, are there structural changes, do we think, in the labor market that may last well into the future? I think it's a little early to tell. I mean, we certainly hope there will be. We do know, for example, if we look at the economy uh, more broadly, during the pandemic, we had the massive rotation of consumption of goods over services. Mm -hmm. That is renormalizing. But we still see that our, our services consumption isn't quite back where it was before. So we would anticipate to see you know, more employment growth there, maybe a little bit less in, in, in goods. So we expect to see some of those changes. You know, here at Aspen, we've been having a lot of discussion about uh, generative AI and technological change and what kinds of changes that will bring to our labor market and our economy. You, you mentioned the generative AI, which has been the subject of a lot of discussion here at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. And, and it, it's early on, at the same time, one of the things we're hearing is it's coming really fast very and very broadly, yes. uh, in a very broad sense. Uh, as a labor economist, what will you be looking at in terms of what we need to do to adjust our workforce yes. for a world of really broad-based broad AI? So 
we all embrace technology, and in our economy and over history, uh, we have all benefited from changes, technological changes such as this generative AI. It can be disruptive in the short term. Uh, and I think the hope is that this will be more uh, complementary with labor, meaning that uh, this kind of technological change allows workers to work better, increase productivity, as opposed to being a, an absolute substitute for labor, so that we see firms adopt using the technology instead of workers. Uh, so that is the challenge. There'll be some of both. I think we hope that it'll be more complementary than sub, than substituting for labor. But that's what I think we'll be looking for. I, you know, we saw numbers about what fraction of occupations, you know, in a certain fraction of the labor force, you know, th these kinds of technologies are substituting for particular tasks, but not for complete jobs. That may be where it starts. I, it's hard to imagine that's where it ends. Dr. Cecilia Rouse, thank you so much for being on Wall Street. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. That is Cecilia Rouse, who until recently was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. On Wednesday, we woke up to the unexpected news that Fitch had downgraded U.S. sovereign debt and then learned that the Treasury would have to borrow yet more money to cover the deficit that we're running, all of which made the meetings at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group even more timely because the subject this year was building a more resilient U.S. economy. So we met with the two chairs of the organization. They are the former Treasury Secretaries, Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner, and we got their thoughts about what they're trying to do to help the U.S. get back on the right fiscal track. Tim Geithner, Hank Paulson, co-chairs of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. So Hank, let me start with you. You've been a chair here a bit longer. What do you hope to accomplish this week in these meetings? Well, uh, David, when we set this up, our goal was to create a forum where we had cutting-edge economic research, evidence-based research, where we could discuss and debate it on a nonpartisan basis. And the big one of the things we really want to do is also create a forum where we can have economic leaders get to know each other, build bonds, and do it across generations, across sectors, and, and across parties. And then we want this research to have a real-world impact. So that's our goal. And so far, over the last six years, I think the group has been coming together, and I'm, I'm sort of very pleased with the way it's developed. And Tim, the subject of the meetings this year is building fiscal resilience in the U.S. economy. Couldn't be more timely. A lot of talk about that even this week. Especially the Fitch ratings is also borrowing more of the Treasury. Putting those to one side, uh, what do we need to do to build fiscal resilience? Well, the, the topic is about economic resilience more broadly. Fiscal resilience is one part of those things. And, you know, if you look at the economy today, it's a pretty resilient economy. You know, we've been through a lot of challenges. And we look, we look pretty strong today in a relative sense. But we have a lot of long-term challenges. And the fiscal challenges are part of those challenges. And, you know, if you think about all the things we face in this more dangerous world, and, you know, a country with very high levels of poverty and huge challenges in innovation, uh, it's important to make sure that we have people focused on research that can help inform better public policy choices at the national level in these things. And that requires bringing people together from all sorts of disciplines, all parts of the economy, both parties, trying to figure out how to build trust and, and knowledge to help shape those outcomes. Hank, looking at the program, one of the issues that can be talked about is how much money we're spending, the deficit and the debt. That subject's been around for quite a while. You've dealt with it before. What are the prospects of actually coming up with solutions that might be implemented? Well, let me tell you something. I'm an optimist. You need to be an optimist to do what we're doing. 
And I believe what we're doing here is a major step forward in doing this, because if we can have great research and get people together across parties and come up with some terrific ideas and get the facts out and think tanks to both political parties, we can make progress. Now, you're right. Our the trajectory, our fiscal trajectory is concerning. And but we're a rich country and we've got time to deal with it. But we need to do some things in, in, in the next few years to, to, to change that trajectory. And uh, I think that's going to be very important. And to do that, it's going to take doing things on both the spending side and the revenue side. We're going to need more revenues and we're going to need to figure out how to, to deal with some, some difficult issues in areas like the entitlements. That was former Treasury Secretaries Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner. Coming up, we'll hear from our special contributor here on Wall Street Week, Larry Summers, about whether he thinks it's time for him to start joining some of the others, like Bank of America economists, and deciding that maybe we won't have that recession after all. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We are joined here in Aspen, Colorado by our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, great to be with you here in Aspen. At the end of the week, we got the jobs numbers. Uh, and they were a little light on the number of jobs, 187,000 as opposed to 200,000. A little heavy, actually, on the wage increases. What do you make of them? Look, nobody should change their minds fundamentally on the basis of these numbers. They were pretty close to expectations. As you said, economy was softer and inflation was a bit stronger uh, than expected, so that's not terrific. But again, not a big deal uh, from these numbers. Look, I think the big story here all along is we're trying to land the plane on the runway. 
where we're worried that the plane would crash short of a runway. That certainly does not look like it's going to happen. We've got a very strong economy. And we're worried that the plane will overshoot the runway. If you look at wage inflation, it was faster for the month than for the quarter, faster for the quarter than for the year, and running for the quarter at about 4.9%. That's not consistent with 2% uh, underlying inflation or close. And unemployment ticked down, vacancies ticked up. We still have a tight labor market, a very tight labor market, and with 187,000 jobs created and population growing 50 to 100,000 a month, we have not just a tight labor market, but a tightening labor market. Now it's true, as some will point out, that we're tightening, we're tightening relative to a tight state at a slower rate than we were before, <laughs> and that's encouraging, but fundamentally the plane is not yet on a trajectory to a soft landing within uh, the runway. And well, let's continue with your analogy about the plane uh, trajectory. Um, where do we need to get to to get on the right trajectory to get to 2% within some reasonable period of time? What sort of numbers do you look for, for example, in wage increases? Right now we're going about 4.4% year over year. What sorts of numbers do you look for on unemployment rate? What are the key factors in so, figuring that trajectory? So part of the, part of the issue is that it's 4.4 <laughs> year over year but it's 4.9 quarter over uh, quarter, and it's probably closer to 5.0 month over uh, month. And so it's not that it is on a decelerating uh, path. But does that suggest broadly, inflation may bounce broadly, back out? Broadly, broadly uh, inflation is the difference between wage growth and productivity growth. And you can argue about where productivity growth is going to be, I would guess, but it's anybody's guess, somewhere between one and one and a half percent. So that would tell you that the kind of inflation we're having is point to, wage inflation we're having is pointing to an underlying inflation rate in the three and a half uh, range and it may not be uh, decelerating. Those are numbers I'll be watching closely. I'll be watching the core inflation uh, numbers. Look, there's no necessary unemployment. Nobody wants to see any unemployment, certainly not any increase in unemployment. But what we know is that if we don't contain inflation, it sets the stage for all sorts of very serious problems uh, elsewhere. And I don't think we can yet be confident that we're not going to see a reacceleration of inflation at some point down the road. And that's the thing that I'm focused on, not some precise numerical target for uh, inflation, but whether there's a sense that this is uh, under control. And I think we'll have to wait and see. Again, the numbers have come in a bit better over the last few months than I would have uh, guessed, but I find the I find the declarations of victory by mm -hmm. some 
to be substantially uh, premature. I'm glad that the Fed is not among those who are uh, declaring uh, victory. And I find the idea that this vindicates the view of those who have been unconcerned about inflation all along to be a bit bizarre since what we followed was very different policies than the ones that they have been pushing. Uh, you've already said you're not so sure Fitch in and of itself is that significant, but is there a fundamental underlying issue here? You're out here as a, one of the leaders of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, and there's a lot of discussion now about what's going on fiscally with the United States. Look, uh, David, I have written and said that I don't think <clears throat> we're on a sustainable uh, fiscal uh, path. I think the Congressional Budget Office is pretty pessimistic. It thinks the deficit's going to be um, in the 7% range once we get out uh, 8 or 10 years. And they think we're going to be reducing defense spending relative to GDP. I think that's wrong given the threats we face. They think that Treasury bill interest rates can average in the low twos. I think that's not close to right given the strains that we face. They assume, because they're required to, that all the Trump tax cuts will phase out. I don't think that's going to happen. They haven't really fully recognized that revenues are coming in well below expectation uh, this year. I think if you do the forecast right, you're looking at a number close to 10. I don't think the United States is going to tell bondholders they're not getting money. I think the fact that we worked through, even in an incredibly toxic political environment, the debt limit settled uh, that issue. I look at so-called credit default swaps on the United States, and they haven't moved. So I don't think Fitch really is contributing usefully uh, to the debate uh, here. I think they're just sort of flailing for relevance and in general uh, rating agencies have not proven very prescient. They tend to follow markets uh, rather than lead them. But I do think for anyone who's concerned about inflation, for anybody who's concerned about our resilience as a country and as an economy, you know, we, we talk constantly these days about the importance of resilience. Well, if you think about a company or you think about a household, not being leveraged to the hilt is an important part mm. of being resilient. And I wish that aspect of resilience would preoccupy our policymakers as much as the ones that can be translated into arguments for creating some jobs in Ohio. Because um, I think that's something that is a very, very important aspect of resilience. Larry, great to be with you here in Aspen. That's Larry Summers, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. A good part of the money that the U.S. is spending is on various infrastructure and clean energy projects. Is it part, really, of a new industrial policy? We asked the former CEO of Honeywell, he's Dave Cody, about whether that makes sense and how it should be done. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. 
So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Industrial policy. It's been credited with Japan's remarkable economic growth after World War II, overseen by the famous, some might say infamous, MITI, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry. Now the United States is trying out its own form of industrial policy as Congress passed first the Inflation Reduction Act, including $370 billion for climate-related investments. We have deep plans uh, for longer-term investments in key sectors, including standing up semiconductors, electric vehicles, electric batteries. And then another $52 billion for the U.S. semiconductor industry. The CHIPS Act is a seminal act for This may be the most significant industrial policy legislation that's been put in place since World War II in the U.S. This is huge. This is good for the industry. It's good for the United States. And Intel will be a beneficiary thereof. And I'm proud to have played a part in getting it across the line. All of which has triggered something of a subsidies competition between the United States and allies such as Canada over the IRA. Yes, the IRA is something that we've had to step up to to make sure we're competitive, but uh, we're going to be a lot more strategic about how we you know, pick and choose the right investments. We can't just do a blanket like the U.S. can. And the European Union over chips. Uh, microchips, they are the backbone of Europe's uh, industrial competitiveness in a digital world. The green and the digital transition, well, it requires new, advanced technological solutions. And, and this is why we must increase Europe's own chips research, development, production capabilities. But the biggest challenge may be making sure all this money will make our economies stronger rather than simply some companies richer. The whole point of this is to increase innovation, research and development in the industry. Not, you know, we're not giving you taxpayer money to fluff your pillow and increase your profit and give it away to your shareholders. We're giving it to you to invest in R&D. Here at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, there's been a lot of talk now about industrial policy, particularly the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as the Chips and Science Act. And so we have somebody who has actually run some things in his life. He is Dave Cody. He's the former CEO, of course, of Honeywell. And he's now executive chairman of Virtus. So, Dave, great to have you here. I always, I always said, when it comes to industrial policy, if we're going to have it, why don't we have Dave Cody in charge of it? What do you, <laughs> what do you think about uh, the Chips and Science Act? What do you think about some of the big industrial policy that's coming out of Washington right now? It's a lot of money involved. Yeah. 
Uh, well, when you think about industrial policy, it tends to be uh, kind of a um, secular, uh, a mobilizing event to left or right, and people are either absolutely for it or absolutely against it. But the reality is uh, there's always been some kind of industrial policy in the country. You're going back to establishing the railroads, establishing canals, the interstate system, NASA to put somebody on the moon. I mean, there's always been that kind of... The, the trick is to not let it go too far. Yeah. So how, how do you find that you know, kind of right spot? So I'm not completely against it, but you've you got to be smart about it because it's very easy once politics starts to intrude, politics will triumph good judgment all the time. So you, you want to make sure you don't lose the good judgment side of it. You asked about the, the CHIPS Act. And I would say, you know, I'm a bit ambivalent about the whole thing. Uh, in terms of what they think it's going to accomplish, uh, I don't think they're even close. And if you take a look at the percent of chips that'll actually affect, it's, I don't know, estimates from 3 to 5% of the total. It's not the super high-end difficult chips. And the know-how required to make those chips doesn't exist in the U.S. anymore. Most of it exists in Taiwan. And this, uh, with the exception of maybe the R&D spending that they're doing, it uh, doesn't really address any of that. So we're spending a lot of money that doesn't exactly solve the problem, which is how do you create uh, a more domestic capability when it comes to being able to produce these super high-end chips? We should be able to figure that out because a lot of the equipment to make these chips is made in the U.S. So you would think that if we spent money in the right places to say, how do we really learn how to do this? That would be, I think, much more efficient and effective spending than just building plants to produce chips that really aren't all that essential. So in general, Dave, uh, a lot of people say, we should look to industrial policy for the things that only the government can do. If the private can, sector can do it, let them do it. In the area of chips, are there things that only the government can do that we actually have to turn to the government and ask them to do it for us? Well, I think the better place for them to be spending their money is more on the R&D yeah. side or uh, providing incentives for people to learn how to produce those chips here. And uh, I, I don't really see that. Uh, one of the things I would like to talk about though on industrial policy is um, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, bringing manufacturing jobs back to the US, like manufacturing jobs uh, solve all our economic problems. And that's a little backwards, I think. And we're, into, we, we're in the agricultural age, went to the industrial era, now we're in the digital age. And if we were smart, we'd be doing the same thing that all our counterparts did 100, 150 years ago when they said, uh, there's this shift to an industrial economy. We need kids to be able to be literate and numerate if they're going to be successful in this kind of environment. Uh, now we're going to the digital age. And instead of saying, all right, how do we educate our kids? How do we prepare them to be able to be successful in a world like this? Instead, we're saying, no, let's make sure that uh, we can keep all the manufacturing jobs here because these will pay well. It'd be a little like if 130 years ago, uh, politicians and business people had said, God, uh, you know, with this industrial thing, man, that's going to be a lot of trouble. We need to find a way to keep people on the farm. <laughs> Right? I mean, it's, it's totally backwards. So I'd rather see an industrial policy that focused more on education for all our kids to say, how do we prepare them for this digital age, which is going to go on for another 80 years or so until something new comes around. This is going to be with us for a while. You mentioned R&D. Yeah. Uh, why can't the private sector do that? I mean, I, you had a big R&D budget, right? Yeah. I mean, all the big corporations have big R&D budget. Why can't the private sector give us the R&D that we need? Yeah, I think that's one of the misconceptions about uh, R&D is always talked about like it's a single thing. 
but it's two words, right? It's research, development. Well, development takes stuff that was developed in research and turns it into viable products. If you were to take a look at all company spending on R&D together, I wouldn't be surprised if you found 90 to 95% of it was spent on development. Mm -hmm. Because research is just too iffy, too expensive. The chances of it turning into something generally can be pretty small. And that's one where I do think the government has a big role to play in just doing this basic research that's available to all U.S. companies. So that as they start finding these things, companies can then take them and develop into products and services that'll be useful. It's one of the areas I think we're falling down a bit, and for me, this would be good industrial policy, mm -hmm. is a lot more money going into research, whether it's uh, health, uh, anything uh, digital, bioengineering, all those things that are going to be very important to us in this century. What about climate? Another big aspect of industrial policy right now is the move toward uh, green energy, essentially. Yep. A lot of money is going into that right now. Uh, does that make sense to you? Well, uh, I'm a fan of figuring out how do you keep land, air, and water as neutral as possible. We're putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere, so figuring out how can we uh, do this in a more neutral way I think is a good idea. However, we shouldn't be thinking that this is going to solve climate change. If you really believe that CO2 and believe all the models that CO2 lasts for 100 years in the atmosphere, is going to be there. We don't get to net zero as a globe for till 2050 or something. And remember, the U.S. is only like 14 or 15 percent of all emissions. That means global warming is coming whether we get to zero or not. It's it's coming. Let's assume, Dave, that we decide we need industrial policy, whether mm -hmm. it's in chips or whether it's in forms of climate, and we decide we need to spend this much money on it. How should we go about doing it? I mean, I think back in World War II, I think FDR basically turned to U.S. industry yeah. to help really drive a lot of the industrialization yeah. that helped the United States and the Allies win the war. How would we go about really figuring out who should administer the industrial <laughs> policy? Well, um, if you go back to that time, what they actually did was take a number of business leaders yeah. and put, brought them into government in order to run a lot of these things, which I don't think is, I still don't think is a bad idea. And I found myself thinking, even when we were in the midst of COVID and we couldn't find uh, basic products, there just weren't enough of them. Yeah. I often thought, why don't they assemble a group of retired CEOs to, and assign them tasks to say, go figure this out, yeah. as opposed to just having a yeah. bunch of governmenty types uh, do it. And yeah, I'd say that possibility still exists. Well, we have a retired CEO right here. <laughs> you volunteering, Dave? <laughs> I don't know that I'm that retired, uh, or retired, retired enough to be able to do that at this point. Hey, Dave, great to have you on Wall Street Week. Thanks oh, so much for fun. being here. Zave Cody, he's the executive chair of Vertive. Coming up, a stronger economy and a bit less inflation. What does that tell the Fed about where it should head next on interest rates? We're going to talk to two regional Fed presidents, Austin Goolsby of Chicago and Rafael Bostic of Atlanta. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
from Aspen, Colorado, for our Bloomberg Television and Radio audiences worldwide. I'm David Weston. I'm delighted to be joined right now by the president of the Chicago Fed. He is Austin Goolsby. Austin, thanks for being here. You bet. So we're out here for the Aspen Economic Strategy Group meetings. A lot of talk about uh, fiscal issues, monetary issues, but we all have now the the key job figures. A little bit lighter than expected, 187,000 instead of 200,000. A little heavier than expected on the wages. What did you take on the job market is cooling a little to, to kind of a balanced level, but it's still extremely strong. That's the strongest part of the economy by far is how low the unemployment rate is and people can get a job if they if they want a job. But what about the wages? We're now, these numbers were 4.4% year over year, I believe it was. Uh, that doesn't sound like something consistent with getting to 2% inflation overall. I don't know. The way I view it is two things. One, you can't say anything about wages until you actually know what's happening with productivity. We got some productivity numbers. They were, they were strong for the quarter. That's very noisy. But if you have strong productivity growth, you can have wage growth and it doesn't generate inflation. And the other thing about wages is they're not a leading indicator of price inflation. They're backward looking. They move, wages move more slowly. When things happen, we get shocks. The prices move first and then the wages. So when we see what's happening to wages today, this is kind of an amalgam of a bunch of stuff that, that already occurred. What are those numbers telling you right now, particularly goods inflation? Is it a bit stickier than you thought? It has been, but the last couple of readings have been pretty positive. Uh, it's important that you raise this goods. Loosely, if you look at core inflation, you got goods, you got housing, you got services, not including housing. And we've much remarked on the stickiness and persistence of services inflation. But we knew that. That, that that's, not, that's not where we went wrong over at the end of last year, beginning of this year, with inflation lasting a little longer than we thought. It has been that goods prices, while down, have not gone all the way down to where they were before the pandemic. I feel like that's kind of started, and that's put the Fed on this line. I mean, it's a thin line to walk, but getting the prices down without having a big recession, we're going to Johnny Cash this thing <laughs> and, and walk that line. And that's for sure the goal. So we got the jobs numbers on Friday at the end of the week. Uh, a little lighter on the number of jobs, a little heavier on the wage increases. How did you interpret them? So they actually came in pretty much as I expected. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've expected the economy to slow down in a fairly orderly way. And this number, the 187, comes in continuing that pace. Some folks would, would have liked it to be faster and a larger gap, but I'm comfortable. I'm not expecting this to be over in a, in a short period of time. Uh, in terms of the wages, uh, it doesn't surprise me that wages are still strong. You know, during this whole high inflation period, uh, worker wages have trailed inflation for quite some time. And so we're still in that catch-up period, and I expect that we will still see uh, strong wages. But I'll tell you, when I talk to employers, the one thing they tell me is that whatever they're setting their wage growth at this year, they're expecting it to be lower next year, and then lower again after that to get back to where we were pre-pandemic. So, you know, we got to keep an eye on it, of course, but uh, I was not concerned too much about that at this point. And I'm sure you'd be the first to tell me one data point isn't enough to make a decision, but uh, do you feel that the Fed is on the trajectory it needs to be on to get to 2% at some point? I do. You know, we are today in a restrictive stance. 
And as inflation continues to fall, the degree to which it's restrictive actually grows as that gap between the inflation rate and our, our interest rate uh, widens. So I think that will uh, put enough constraint on the economy that it will continue to slow. But again, I'm not expecting this to be you know, a two-month or a three-month period. I, my outlook is that we'll still be in a restrictive territory well into 2024, uh, and it'll just take a while for the inflationary pressures that we've seen over the, the last year and a half to fully dissipate and get us back to 2%. That's Rafael Bostic. He is the president of the Atlanta Fed. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week, coming to you from Aspen, Colorado. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week in New York. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.